Morning. Turn to Matthew 6, particularly verses 25 through 34. I have the privilege of preaching on what I see as a unique and somewhat uh, transitional Sunday. This is the Sunday after Thanksgiving and before the Christmas rush, where many of us make the shift from being very verbal about all that we are thankful for to internalizing what we really wish that we had. A lot of us this weekend, maybe we've already made it. Maybe it happened at midnight on Thursday when Walmart opened. From focusing on all that we've been blessed with uh, to focusing on all we really wish we were blessed with. So I'd like to open with prayer. And I, my hope is that God would use these verses and this preaching to temper and to instruct us, um, particularly in this holiday season. So let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that you have revealed your ways to us. Lord, I'm thankful that you've revealed a design and a purpose and a plan to us, and you show us how to walk in it. Lord, during this time of the year, I'm reminded of how the world and the culture reels and screams at us to partake of its wares. And uh, my prayer this morning is that your word would, would free us from things that uh, we would be fools to be kept in bondage to. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to truth this morning. I pray that you would reveal to us um, right concern versus wrong concern. I pray that you would show us the realities about many of our just default modes of thinking when it comes to, to stuff, when it comes to what you're doing all the time. Lord, I pray uh, this morning for Greg Fields at Westminster and uh, talking with him last night. I'm just encouraged at how he's pressing on and, and preaching the word daily uh, or uh, weekly and preparing it uh, daily and how um, we're moving from Genesis into Exodus and, and he's so eager uh, for his people to, to feast on it. I pray that this morning they are enjoying you. I also pray for Gary Singleton at the Heights in Dallas. I pray the same thing, that he is preaching a message right now that, is, that has run him through and that there is a people who are not there to use you as a means to something else, but to enjoy you. Lord, I pray this morning for our kids as they're in, many of them are in here with us I pray that you would give kids and adults alike an attentiveness to the word. And I pray that you would use me as a vessel, a very common and fragile vessel, uh, to be poured out as you see fit. Lord, you're incredibly, incredibly good to us. And it's a privilege that we get to sit here this morning and open the word. pray that you would guide our time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Those few words may hit you like a freight train this morning, especially given where we are in the season. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds. 
No, really, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. No, really, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these, all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Given that we have all just lived through a Black Friday, one of the biggest sale weekends of the year, these verses may actually sound a bit humorous to you in light of what you've been listening to over the last 72 hours. A strong encouragement not to be anxious about what you'll eat, drink, and wear. See, in the last 72 hours, you've been bombarded with uh, commercials and ads that aim to make you anxious. Did you know that? They want you to be anxious. They want you to be anxious about missing out on the best deals, the best things that make up life. Even yesterday, as I worked on my sermon while listening to Pandora Radio online, uh, I was reminded in the course of three hours, I was reminded 14 times about the best way to do all of my online holiday shopping. And each of the 14 times, they even give me a coupon code so I could get the best possible deal as I prepared this sermon, which speaks against it. Lindsay said yesterday afternoon that this is a great week to hear this sermon and a really hard week to prepare this sermon. I feel in a sense I'm being summoned to the pulpit to speak of something that flies in the face of 90% of what you hear when you leave here. Feel in a sense I'm being summoned to the pulpit to speak on something that I struggle with greatly, like many others. On a personal note, I did find it a little bit humorous that the night where people will literally be camping out to get the best deals, God decided to make it 45 degrees colder than the previous night. That's funny. It was 55 in some areas. Do you like the 20 bucks you saved? Was it worth it? Here in these verses, Jesus is not sharing some anecdotal devotional with us that's to be easily dismissed. Some of us may look at these verses as culturally irrelevant, surely not pertaining to our busy schedules of the 21st century. But let us consider some background. First of all, you may have caught on, but this is Jesus speaking. That's, I shouldn't have to say any more. It's Jesus speaking that's important. Particularly, he's preaching in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. See, what Jesus is doing is he's sitting down and um, 
Ben and I got to go and share a camp this last week or two weeks ago, whatever it was, and he, he was explaining to them that preaching is a monologue. It's not a dialogue. And so often we want to trade the monologue for the dialogue. Jesus doesn't sit down at the Sermon on the Mount and say, okay, guys, these are my thoughts on lust. What do you think? These are my thoughts on divorce. What do you think? These are my thoughts on anger. What are your thoughts? This is verse after verse after verse of Jesus saying, I'm coming in with a message that's important for you to hear. I don't need to hear your thoughts right now. You need to listen closely. So as far as context goes, this is Jesus preaching particularly what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. He's been baptized, brought to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He heard of John's arrest, and he made his way back to Capernaum, or Capernaum, however you want to say it, to start his ministry. Jesus is called his first disciples, and as he has ministered, he's healing people and proclaiming the gospel. The crowds have grown. And chapter 5 says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. I want you to consider that Jesus is speaking particularly to disciples here. Consider that he is entrusting the gospel to his disciples because if his disciples are misinformed, then the crowds have little hope. Now we know that also some of the crowds made their way and listened in because it says at the end of the sermon, what every preacher hopes the people say at the end of the sermon, they were just astonished, blown away. Some in a good way, some likely not in a good way. So Jesus is in his first days of public ministry, preaching a sermon that cuts to the core of the culturally accepted norms of the time. And for about three decades, Jesus has observed the way that things are, as opposed to the way that God says they're supposed to be. It does not matter what decade you live in. It doesn't matter or what culture you're immersed in. These truths that he shares in these verses are hard, very hard. I don't want to stand up here and speak and preach as though you're just a, a goober if you can't do this. It's hard. But God doesn't call us to things that are impossible. He gives us the spirit. The reason that this is hard is that our default mode is sin. We are self-serving by our sinful nature. It is sinful and self-serving to be anxious about your life. That may be news to a lot of us. It's sinful and self-serving to be anxious about your life. He who gave your life to you is worthy of your trust. So our problem is sin, but we're not just left helpless in our sin. Christ has come to earth to redeem it. It needs redeeming. He comes bringing the message of what you've heard here spoken of as a contrary kingdom. So here we engage this sermon preached by Jesus. And in 625 we read, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. You can almost hear Jesus saying, therefore, I tell you, as opposed to what others may tell you, do not be anxious about your life. I mentioned previously that you hear ads, especially in the last few days, that really want you to be anxious. That's the goal. What they're saying to you is, if you miss out on blank, you miss out on life. If you don't make the most of blank, you're missing out on life. An anxiety-free holiday is a bummer and a nightmare for retailers. People need to be filled with anxiety. And then they'll come to our store and, and they'll try to appease the anxiety by getting what we tell them they need. And then, ironically, they go home and complain about all the crazy people all day. You made them crazy. 
That's the message you're preaching. Howard Hendricks tells us to always say, what's the therefore, therefore? Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What's the therefore, therefore? He's, he's, he's alluding to and, and, and referring to something previous. He's intentionally drawing us back to the previous set of verses. Verse 23 closes a thought, and verse 24 begins a new one. And look at verse 24 with me. Matthew 6, 24 says this. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Christ is addressing the problem of a people who proclaim God as their master, but they really serve money. They've got this proclamation of God, and they're really serving money. He's saying it doesn't work. You can't do that. This should not be hard for us to imagine. I would ask you, in any given December, how many hours do you spend considering Christ as opposed to how many hours you spend considering what you want, what you need to buy, what you will wear, and what you will eat? I would ask, how many hours do you spend reading the circulars and the ads and the online shopping updates as opposed to how many hours you spend reading your Bible? And if you're sitting there thinking, you don't get it, you just don't understand, I've got a lot to buy. I would offer there's more. The people of the time that Jesus is addressing, where he says you can't serve both God and money, they were of such that they were consumed, they were so consumed with stuff that they were storing up treasures on earth without much thought toward heaven. Can you imagine being so distracted that you don't give much thought to heaven because of the treasures you're storing up on earth? See, these people were of such that all of this stored up treasure caused the people great anxiety because thieves and moths and rust were threatening the worth of their treasures. And they found their hearts carried away with concern for their earthly belongings. Jesus tells them it's better to store up treasures in heaven. A lot of you kids remember the song that we did in Backyard Bible Clubs, Store Up For Yourself Treasures in Heaven. Jesus says that in heaven there's no moths. That should be good news. In heaven there's no rust. And in heaven there's no thieves. Well, there's probably former thieves, but they're not allowed to steal anymore. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is not just a budgeting issue or a storage issue that Jesus is trying to address. It's a worship issue. Jesus informs this situation by saying, if you give your heart to earthly belongings... Consumed with thoughts of how to keep what you have and get even more, your worship's going to suffer because you will despise God while you serve your true master, money. You have to ask the question, are you really serving God as your master or are you really serving money as your master? Jesus comes in with a big ax and he lays it to the root of their worship problem and he goes on to address the fruit in verse 25. He, he makes two important statements, one about anxiety and the other about life. Jesus is preaching. He's unbelievably wise. And he makes a statement about anxiety and a statement about life. First, anxiety. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, drink, or wear. What is anxiety? I would ask you to consider the things that stir anxiety in you. What are the things that keep you up at night? What are the things that can change your day? If you hear this news, you're going to go for it. may be the best day, but in the snap of a finger, it can all go south quick. Turn to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. 
verses 6 through 7. What is anxiety? Why do we deal with it? Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is important um, that we see this point here, and we'll see it again later in Matthew, that God doesn't want us to be filled with anxiety with the reason being that he cares for us. For some of you, that may be the very news you need to hear. I'll restate it. God cares for you. Don't be anxious. The purpose of God's care for you, one thing that is a fruit of that, is you don't have to be anxious and wigging out all of the time about everything. God cares for you, and that's no small matter. As well, we're giving, we are being given insight into what anxiety is. A lot of us are really misinformed here. The opposite of anxiety is what we're given the definition of. The opposite of anxiety is to humble yourselves before the Lord. Think about that. The opposite of anxiety is to humble yourselves before the Lord. This means that, that if you're filled with anxiety, what are you not doing? You're, you're not humbling yourself before the Lord. So rather than being something to be pitied, anxiety is actually a form of pride. Anxiety is actually a form of pride. This is very personal for me. Because I remember the first time I learned this, and it bummed me out, because I realized my view of anxiety was wrong. I grew up in North Dallas, in an environment that really fostered this, oh, you got to go, got to get more, got to go, got to get more, got to keep what you got. Someone wants what you got. Don't let them have what you got. And I remember the first time I learned this. I thought that anxiety was really the sign of a person who was dedicated to their purpose to such a degree that it troubled them. Hear that. I thought anxiety was the sign of a person who was so dedicated to that purpose that it troubled them. And this was to be pitied and even valued because it meant you were dealing with a, perpen, a person who was dedicated to the vision and the purpose of the thing that caused the anxiety. I'll pity them because they're so troubled, but I value them because they're so dedicated that they're troubled by this thing. What it looks like is this. Someone says, how's your week going? Or, how's work? <sighs> Man, work, who, um, you know, we got all these deadlines, and I got these things, and I got to get this project done by here, and you, and you speak it about a thousand miles an hour, and by the time you're done, what your real hope is, is that they would look at you, and that they would walk away, and they would say, man, I really feel sorry for them. But they are really dedicated to their work. It's tricky. That's what sin does. It cloaks itself in false righteousness. It's like someone saying, hey, uh, how's your family? Oh, man, I get this with the kids and this with the kids and this with the kids. And I just don't know if this is going to work out and all this stuff. And, and I'm just, I'm up at night and, it's, and I'm filled with anxiety over it. What you're really hoping is that that person walks away saying, I feel sorry for them. And... They really love their kids. You see how tricky it is? What's void of that exchange is a recounting of how great God is. How's your work? God's really good. Let me show you what God's done at my work. Because I guarantee if you're a believer, he's doing something. 
How's the family? Well, let me recount some deeds of the Lord so that we can worship together. If it's void of that and you're just completely unhinged and unseated and just want to pour that on someone else so that they walk away saying, I feel sorry for them and they're really dedicated to that thing. That's a lie. God says that our anxiety shows a lack of humility. God says it's actually a form of pride. God also makes a statement about life in these verses. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? For those of you who find yourselves asking that question, isn't there more to all this than, than go to work, earn money, spend money, go to work, earn money, spend money, go to work, earn money, spend money? Isn't there more? The whole rat race thing? If you're just kind of tired of it and you're thinking, seriously? Are we going to do this for another three decades? Because I'm bored right now. This stinks. I want to encourage you because Jesus answers your question with a resounding, yes, there's much more to it than that. Jesus wants to make sure that you see that there is so much more to your life than the sum of the stuff you have or you want to get, be it food or clothes or other belongings. I want to point out here that he says, do not be worried about what you'll eat, drink, or wear. Jesus isn't trying to just limit your worries to certain areas. Because if you're thinking, what about what I drive? What about where I live? He's not limiting your worries to certain areas that he feels comfortable with. Jesus is not a fool. He doesn't have here a hidden uh, caveat for you to still be able to worry about what you drive or your mortgage payment or a, a laundry list of other things. Think of it this way. If it's prone to rust, if it's prone to being eaten by moths, And if it's prone to being stolen, it's not sufficient to sum up an individual's life. And it's not worth being filled with anxiety over. This morning, as I was getting ready, I'm going through these notes, and Ella had just gotten this little snow globe. And she dropped it, shattered everywhere. She just, my little snow globe. And to make it worse, Olivia still had one that wasn't broken. And she just started, it's new, I just got that. I was like, baby girl, we can, we can get another one if, if we need it. I mean, if we really need another one, I'm, I'm sure the Lord will provide for us to get it. At which point she said, Dad, thank you for the spiritual insight and your biblical knowledge. It's brought me comfort. Um, consider if your life was summed up Uh, to the things you worry about. If you were to actually take a piece of paper and make a list of all the things you've worried about this week, would that sum up your life? Because Jesus says, "Ah, it's more than that. It's way more than that. Since I was a teenager, I felt my father in a family side business of installing alarm and security systems. And I've observed two different types of people. Those who want a security system to help protect their families and those who want a security system to help protect their stuff. You can tell the difference quickly. And generally, those who aim to protect their stuff will spend a lot more money. As opposed to those who are just aiming to add a layer of security for their family. And the conversations with the the two different people are different. Generally, one talks about family and things that are worthwhile, and the other will just talk about the stuff. I've actually seen people opt out of putting something in the kids' room to put something over here where this really valuable thing is. It's an interesting observation. Life is so much more than stuff. I plead with you this holiday season not to be fooled 
or bewitched. Do not be convinced by the media or the sale ads or the commercials that you need to be consumed with cares about what you will receive or even material goods that you'll give to other people. Your life and your body are about more than what you eat and what you drink and what you have and what you drive. Kids, the holiday season is not just about what you're going to get for Christmas. Look at your parents. Say you're sorry. You've already started the whining. It's about way more than what you're going to get. Don't be fooled this holiday season. It's about Jesus, and he says that life is far more than those things. And look at verse 26. Jesus goes on. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? God offers his first remedy for this problem of being consumed with all the wrong things. Remedy number one, look at the birds. This is a regular practice for all of us, isn't it? We close our laptops down, put our cell phones away, go outside and you comforted when you do that? Did y'all all do that this week? When's the last time you, you looked at the birds, really? Now, I want to I make sure we see this. Because you might be thinking, really? Come on, look at the birds? Um, there's no embodiment of wisdom that exceeds that of Jesus. There's no embodiment of wisdom that exceeds that of Jesus. And in his infinite wisdom, he tells us to look at the birds. It's not a metaphor. We don't have to dig and say, what does he really mean here? What are the birds symbolizing? Look at the birds. That's what he's saying. In his infinite wisdom, this church was founded on the question, what does the Bible say about this? When we were writing constitution and bylaws in the early days of this church about seven or eight years ago, rather than just saying, what's everyone else doing? What, what, do y'all, what do you think? What do you think? We said, what does the Bible say about that? And the way that we're set up, the way that the leadership is set up, the way that accountability is set up, the way that discipleship is set up, the way that walking together in the preached word, which is the imperishable seed, is set up, the way that discipline is set up, all comes from the question, what does the Bible have to say about this? And we came to a point where we're like, you know what? If the Bible, if we find something that says we're all going to wear silly, we're supposed to wear silly orange hats, we're all getting the hats this week and we're starting it. That's how dedicated we're going to be to making sure we're not just offering up strange fire and winging it. What does the Lord say? So in regards to struggling with, with materialism and this constant pursuit of stuff, what does the word say? Well, Jesus in the word says, look at the birds. This makes me think there must be something that he knows that we don't. Because that's probably not your first thought. I'm so stressed out today. Where are the birds? And reminding us of how the birds are cared for, he's actually reminding us of how we're cared for and then some. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? You might hear that and say, wait a minute, I got to go to work. Am I of more value than they? They don't got to go to work. I got to go to work. They don't have a light bill. I have a light bill. They don't have a mortgage. I have a mortgage. Am I of more value than they? Turn to 1 Corinthians 3, 7. 
Verses like this help us to gain great perspective when dealing with issues like this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, we can start in verse 5. This is Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, which is a, a bit of a train wreck, but he rejoices for the grace that he sees at work in him. Ben addressed that a few weeks ago. I really love seeing God's grace in your life. Look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. You see God's hand in it. It's one of the things you'll, you'll observe. You'll see God's fingerprints all over his design. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. This verse reminds us that neither he who waters nor he who plants is anything, but only who? God. Why? Because you can't make a flower grow. You can't make the crops rot. You don't stand out in the field and, oh, and make the crops come up. You can't do that. You can't look at your bank account and just, come on. Only God gives the growth. Only God gives the increase. And in all of our reaping and all of our sowing and all of our gathering, it is only God who causes any increase or growth. Without God, there's no reaping. Without God, there's nothing to gather. This is an important point for us because many of us make a huge mistake in our thinking. Many of us make a huge mistake in our thinking that goes something like this. I have what I have because I work hard. My house, my car, my clothes, the meals we eat are a product of my hard work. And because I am a Christian, in some spiritual ways, God also blesses me along the way. Do you think like that? Why do you have what you have? Because I work hard. Yeah, God blesses me. He only gives the growth. I have what I have because of my hard work. And in some spiritual way, God blesses me along the way. Are you guilty of that thinking? If you are, don't wink at it. This is a time for repentance. All true blessing comes from God. You don't have to... Turn to these verses, but I would encourage you to always take notes, and I would encourage you, if you are taking notes, to write these down. Proverbs 10.22 states, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. This means that riches without sorrow can only come from the Lord in wisdom. So if you're a believer and you've enjoyed riches, which really, if we boil it down, all of us have, because of where we live and when we live, some of the richest people that ever walk the face of the earth, Riches without sorrow can only come from the Lord in his wisdom. Malachi 3.10. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I'll not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. A lot of people mess that verse up. They think it's until there's no more want. It's until there's no more need. God absolutely provides for your needs. Psalm 144.15, blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. If your God is the Lord, which in fact he is, there's blessings falling on your life all the time. In 1 Chronicles 29.16, when they're putting things together for the tabernacle where the Lord will actually dwell with his people, this beautiful statement is made. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building... You, a house for your holy name, comes from your hand and is all your own. 
That's a right perspective. All this abundance is not what they were able to do, and they didn't take it to the Lord and say, you impressed? They said, this is all yours. This all comes from your hand, this abundance. In short, there are riches, blessing, and abundance from God that are without sorrow. And there are riches, blessing, and abundance that are not from God that come with great sorrow. And there's a difference between the two. And you may need to consider in your own life if you're serving maybe a wrong way, in a wrong way, or the wrong one. God wants you to know that there's not a blessing that you enjoy in faith that has not come from his hands. He does far more than just help us in our prayer life and our devotional time. He's so much bigger than that. So, for whatever reason, I don't really know why. It's probably just getting caught up in the flow of culture and things, but we minimize God to thinking he's just going to help you in your prayer life. He's just going to help you with some spiritual thing that's hard to define. I don't know where to go with this, so maybe God will do something with it. He's doing stuff all the time. He's very, very active in the lives of his children with a love that is completely lacking in nothing. He's really, really good. Turn to Philippians 4. Again, this is Paul, the same guy who wrote, Only God Gives the Growth. Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. Paul's bringing his letter to a close, and he says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In the 1600s, a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And I would offer that here, many, many years later, Christian contentment is still a rare jewel. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty. The secret of facing plenty. I remember the first time I heard someone talking about the secret of facing plenty. It was a very wealthy man, and he was talking about the woes that go with all of the money he has. And you may be like me, where when I heard him, I was like, oh, poor baby. I'll give it a shot. Shovel it over here. Just bring a big old pile. I'll try to brave that storm with you. Wow. There's a secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If you never have to face need, you will never get to experience God as your provider. And that's important. If you never have to face a need, you'll never get to experience God as your provider. And for many of us, our main goal is to not need anything. We will build up accounts and we will pay things down. Good stewardship is great. We're going to talk about that next week. This isn't some hippie lifestyle. Don't even worry, man. We'll talk about that next week. But for for some of us, our goal is just to not ever need anything at all. And it's good to work hard. It's good to have something to give to someone else. But if you're just pursuing, I mean, I know people who live in very large houses who regularly are consumed and their hearts are carried away that there might be a day where they can't make the payments so they're just going to pay it down now. And that's the goal. And in fact, we're just going to, that's all we're going to focus on right now. That's it. It's a weird goal if you're a Christian. If you're pursuing the goal, while you're completely waking out. 
It breeds anxiety. You might be pursuing a goal of not needing anything, and you're pursuing it in a way that breeds anxiety. Now, you may also be thinking, a secret of facing plenty and hunger. I want to learn that secret. I hope that some of you say that. I want to know that secret. Look at the previous verses in Philippians 4, in uh, verse 4 particularly. God doesn't say, just sit there. Just just sit there. It is what it is. Just sit there. (laughs) He doesn't say that. He says, work hard. And he says, pray. He says, rejoice always. Look at Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. A lot of our rejoicing is contingent upon our situation. A lot of us say, I'm happy. Things are good. The bills are paid. I rejoice. This month stinks. The bills aren't paid. I don't rejoice. This flies in the face of that. Rejoice always. Let your reasonableness be known to everybody. If your rejoicing varies with where you're at in life, you're an unreasonable person. Isn't that encouraging? The Lord is at hand. Listen to this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And it's all going to work out easily and perfectly. No? Let your request be made known to God. And he says this, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. That means that God will intentionally put you in situations where it's hard to understand what's going on. And as you pray, while rejoicing, not being anxious, God will give you peace that's more important than understanding what's going on. Because you have God in that scenario. That's a big deal. You're not void of God. You may be void of other things. You may be hungry. You have God, and he says, I'll give you peace that exceeds understanding, and he promises to provide for us our needs. These verses in Philippians help to temper us. They remind us, one, that our gospel is not one of prosperity, some name-it-and-claim-it triviality. Don't minimize what God's saying here. He does more than that. Whether we're being brought high or brought low, our almighty God is caring for us in ways that we often overlook. If we paid attention to more of the details and looked at how God has brought us from place to place and provided for us abundantly, none of you have ever been without clothes. There's not a whole lot of us having to sleep out in the, in the elements. Some of us may be hungry, but I guarantee if you tell someone, you'll get a really good meal today. You're you're a member of a body. We're supposed to take care of each other. And God cares for us in many ways that we often overlook. Always making sure we have what we need. But here's the thing. He defines the need, not us. This is why those who say they serve God but really serve money will come to despise God because God will not bow down to their master. When they do not get what they want and they find themselves unappeasable or unable to be pleased, they will turn on God because he hasn't given them what they really wanted. In a horrible turn of events, God has become the means to their treasure, not the treasure itself or himself, I should say. God is the master. He will not bow down to whatever master you decide to serve. Jesus aims to redeem you from your idolatry, not fuel it. He's come to redeem you from your idolatry. Not say, oh, if that makes you happy, I'm going to let you get away with that. I've heard Ben say that. Jesus isn't going to let you get away with that? Completely filled with joy and happiness apart from him? 
He doesn't serve your God. He doesn't bow down to your master, whatever you choose for the day. He aims to redeem you, not fuel the idolatry. So we come back to this simple but profound insight from Jesus. Look at the birds. Some have looked at the birds and become filled with envy or jealousy. Think about this. Go with me. Some have looked at the birds and become filled with envy and jealousy. You may remember the line from the little girl in Forrest Gump. Dear God, make me a bird so I can fly far, far away from here. That's a concept that actually lots of songs have been written about. I think Nelly Furtado recently took a crack at it. Wasn't very good. Um, Free Bird, requested by every drunk in every bar where there was ever a live band. Free Bird. Many have written songs about such a concept. But here's the thing. God's aim is not that you would envy the birds. Jesus asks a telling question after he says that. Are you not of more value than they? These carefree birds that fly about, not having to reap, not having to sow, not having to gather, not having to set a budget, not having to balance a checkbook, not having to make a schedule and then keep that schedule, not having to look for a new job when the current one goes away, these birds whose song seems to never end are not placed there by the Almighty God to make you jealous. They're there by God's hand to remind you that he values you more than he values the birds. So look at the birds and know that he values you more. He places higher value on the process to care for you and to provide for you and to guide you and to encourage you more than he does them. And in all of this blessing, I want to be careful because when I say he guides you and he encourages you and he provides for you, I don't want you to go, oh, sweet, it's about me, not about you. In all this blessing, we're soberly reminded that though God goes to great lengths to care for his children, he also wants us to see the sinful, self-serving misconception that to forget this truth about our value in his eyes is actually a misrepresentation of him. When we are filled with anxiety and we look at the birds and we're envious as opposed to thankful, and we wish that we could just fly away, escapism, get out of here, we're misrepresenting our God. It misrepresents him by saying to the world, that we follow God, yet we are consistently filled with anxiety about if we'll have enough. And the world will look at us and wonder why our God is not taking better care of us. You hear that? We proclaim, I follow Jesus. And then we spew, I'm just absolutely unseated by all of the anxiety and all the, I don't know how it's going to work. And the world will look at you and say, I wonder why their God's not taking better care of them while all the time he is. It's a misrepresentation of who our God is to lose sight of our value in his eyes. Do not be jealous of the birds. In verse 27, back in Matthew 6, you can turn there. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Jesus follows up the first question with that one. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Jesus is moving from teaching truth to encouraging listeners to simply observe the truth in their own lives. That's one of the beautiful things about truth. It is not conditional upon your situation. See, Jesus just makes a real smooth transition. This is truth. This is truth. This is truth. Observe it in your own life. It's true to life. 
He's not just wanting to give you truths that are separate from life. Remember, it's not escapism. We're not just trying to get away from it all. Truth is not conditional upon your situation. In short, Jesus is saying, Jesus is looking at a people who have a tendency to be consumed with cares of the world, and he says, so all of this worrying and all this anxiety, how's that working out for you? I'd ask you the same question this morning. It's likely a lot of you have been filled with a lot of anxiety this last week. Are you comforted by it? Do you find that, in fact, you have more time to deal with things when you're done worrying about them? Well, I spent three hours worrying about that. Now I'll have more time to actually deal with it. In this language Jesus is using here, he's actually implying that to think you can add time to your life by worrying is as silly as a short man thinking he could add inches to his height by worrying about how tall he is. Kids, think about that. What if I brought one of you kids up here and stood next to me, and you're, you're maybe not, some of y'all are pretty tall, but one of the shorter ones, and you stood next to me, and you're not quite as tall as me. Could you just sit here and worry about how tall you are and then be as tall as I am? Jesus says it's just as silly to worry about these other matters in that way. To be anxious over them, it's just as silly as thinking you can become taller by worrying about your height. Who can add a single hour to his span of life? Ironically, we would do well to take our cues from Zacchaeus. Remember the song? We little man, we little man was he. What did he do? He sit there and whine about his weeness? <laughs> Is that what he did? Did he whine about, I'm little, I'm wee. No, he climbed up in a what? Sycamore tree. Sycamore trees are great for seeing who? God. See, what he did is he did, um, he did the best with what he had, and he climbed a tree to be able to see God. I think that Jesus is telling us to be all in and do the absolute best that we can with the resources that we have. Because here's the truth. The resources that you have are exactly what he has deemed you need for the time being. You don't get to look at your resources and say, God, you failed. You're fired. What you have is exactly what God has deemed that you need right now. It does you no good to worry about having more. When Jesus is saying, you have plenty, worship. You have plenty, worship. Use those resources for good, worship. What I want you to consider is that your, your household, you can raise kids in a very different way. Are you raising a generation of worriers or a generation of worshipers? Because they don't the kids don't sort through your silliness. They won't look at you and say, they won't go to the room and say, yeah, mom and dad are worrying about the bills again. I wish they'd just trust the Lord. They're probably taking their cues from you. And they're probably saying, well, I guess we need to worry with them. Are you raising a generation of warriors or a generation of worshipers who trust the Lord implicitly in every circumstance? Can you be brought low and look at your kids and say, God's really good. He's really, really good. Or do they just have to observe your grumbling and your complaining? Did you maybe miss out on that special Black Friday item? Did your kids get to observe you and your dismal, sad concern? If you have a need, you go to the Lord in prayer and you also share it with the body. You guys are members of one another. We're called to take care of each other. You don't just get taken care of just because you got a job, and that's it. That's, that's what it is to it. If there's a need, 
If you're sitting here this morning and you're like, I'm pretty sure I have a need and I'm concerned about it. Talk to someone who's a member of the body. We have a number of deacons here who would love to sit and talk with you. And if there's a need, we don't want you to go without something you actually need. Being members of one another, that's an important thing. So step one for us this week is to look at the birds. Yes, Jesus actually expects you to look at the birds. And next week, we're going we're gonna to get crazy. We're going to consider the lilies. My fear is that some of us may respond this morning with this. So now you expect me to put bird watching and lily gazing on the schedule? And if this is your response, I would remind you of James 1.5. Because this is Jesus preaching. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. If you lack wisdom and you go to the Lord and you say, Lord, I lack wisdom, this, frankly, this sounds crazy to me. He'll give you wisdom. He says he will. He's never broken a promise. If you listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 6 and you respond smugly, thinking that surely he doesn't expect you to actually look at the birds and consider the lilies, then I would offer that it's not likely Jesus who's the one lacking wisdom. He knows more than you. He does. He knows more. He does. His insight's greater by a lot. Don't be discouraged this morning. Kids, make it a point this week to remind your parents, y'all need to go look at the birds. Don't write a story about it. Don't write a poem about it. Just go look at the birds together. Don't be discouraged this morning. God has surrounded you with birds and lilies and the grass of the field and trees that Genesis says are supposed to be pleasing to our sight to remind you that you're an image bearer and he cares for you more than these things that surround you. And while it may seem a bit simplistic, what Jesus shares here is actually more complex than your deepest thoughts. It accomplishes more than what you could ever accomplish by trying to do something else. And that'll be the majority of where we focus next week. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that this morning feels like a bit of an appetizer because I know there's so much more in these verses and I know that next week we're going to get to feast on some of these truths. But I pray that this week you would cause us to really humble ourselves before you, to cast our anxieties on you, to hear the word and really submit to it, to not look at your request and your, your encouragement and your command even to look at the birds and say, that's just silly. I don't have time for that. I'm an important person. Lord, keep us from such foolishness and such arrogance. Yes, it seems simplistic, but God, your ways are so much higher than our ways. Lord, I pray that we would not be fooled and bewitched this holiday season to think it's about something other than Jesus. It's just not Let us not lose sight of Jesus and the hustle and bustle of everything. Lord, I pray that we would be a congregation of people who are crazy generous, eager to gift people with things and to give and to to provide care and to encourage and to to just pour blessings on other people. I pray that we are like that. But I pray that in the process of getting what we need to get for other people, we would not be filled with crazy anxiety over stuff where we're losing sleep over and totally losing sight of Jesus. I pray that every gift we give is not void of the truth of the gift of your son 
who died on the cross for our sins, who came to redeem this earth so that we would not have to walk in darkness. You guide us into a way of truth, and for that we're thankful. Lord, I pray that we would enjoy you. I pray that you would be our treasure, and I pray that we would not look to you as a means to another treasure. Thank you for freeing us from anxiety. Many of us desperately need that. Thank you for freeing us from being overwhelmed with consuming cares about trivial matters that don't matter because you are tending to a lot of stuff. God, you're very, very good to us. Very good. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Book of Isaiah shares a sweet picture of the condition of the nation of Israel. They'd given themselves to idolatry about 700 years after they were led out of Egypt. About 700 years before Christ. It says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. That's what idolatry is. It's delighting in something other than God. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. They're only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together, all these human craftsmen. craftsmen. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool, and he works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers. He works it with his strong arm, and he becomes hungry. And his strength fails. He drinks no water and he's faint. This strong-armed craftsman is just human. The carpenter, he stretches out a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house, a little bitty figure. He cuts down cedars. Or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak tree and he lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes just fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread good so far. It's just utility. It's just stuff. But then he also makes a God out of this wood and he worships it. Or he makes an idol and falls down before of it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied for a moment. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. That's what idolatry is. And if you think you're not guilty of it, you don't know yourself. 
What do you look to for deliverance? What do you look to do delight in? Man, I made little notes in my Bible of the things that I look to for deliverance and delight. And I'll tell you what's number one on Ben McGraw's list, food. It might as well be a tree in the woods. It's just utility. It's just fuel. Yet I run to it for delight. And I run to it for deliverance. When I'm stressed out or troubled or worrying about something, even when I'm celebrating something, let me go get something to eat. I wear my problem. I wear proof that I am an idolater. Food. You can do it with money. What do you delight in? What do you depend on? What do you expect is going to deliver you? A better job? More money? That score on Black Friday? Is that going to make the Christmas? What do you look to to delight in to deliver you? It can be hobbies. It can even be family. You can make an idol of your family. It's ridiculous when you really look at it. He says, They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that first they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. Second, they cannot see, they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Hey, dude, half of it he burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten, and I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. It looks like he's satisfied. It says he feeds on ashes. Is that going to nourish? This is the anti-supper of the world. This is what the world feasts on. And it's like eating. Ashes. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And the third thing, he cannot deliver himself. He cannot see. He cannot understand. He cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand, this thing I just fashioned? This is the human condition. Stuck. But the word continues. It might as well say, but God, my favorite two words in the Bible. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. And guess what? I don't get fatigued. Guess what? I don't grow faint. I don't need to hydrate. I formed you, and you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. You, one, one who cannot see, one who cannot understand, one who cannot deliver himself, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. What man could not do because he he could not see, he could not understand, he could not deliver himself, God has done. The Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains. O forest and every tree in it. 
For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. When we take this supper, we're contrasting it with the anti-supper. The supper that's mixed with, okay, I'm going to eat something that's going to satisfy me for a moment. And meanwhile, I'm building my idols and they're sitting right next to me. And I'm so distracted. I'm so anxious and so focused on all this stuff. We're setting that aside and saying, that's the anti-meal. No thanks. I'd rather have the singular meal that's concentrated on the only thing that delivers the bread that is Christ and the cup that is his blood. It's a focused people that are saying, no, we will not be distracted with all these empty promises. It's but ashes. And we're celebrating what we could not do on our own. He has done in this person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's worship with a singular focus. A singular satisfaction in this meal that we take together. This good supper, this true supper. Let's pray to prepare our hearts before we take the supper together. Lord, we are so shocked. Shocked. I, I frankly am shocked at how easy I get distracted and anxious and deluded. Lord, the more I study, the more I preach, the more I walk with you on this journey together. the more I realize how frail, fragile, feeble, sinful, selfish I am. Lord, I see these words and I identify with them that I cannot deliver myself from my blindness. Lord, I am so thankful that you have delivered us. You've done what we could not do. Lord, I'm thankful that you... Prepare a meal before us, a singular meal, that in contrast with the world's meal that doesn't deliver, one that does, one that satisfies. I pray that the people of God this morning race to this meal. I pray that the people of God's heart sing together with the earth and the heavens at what was achieved through the cross. When we take this meal together as simple as it seems, a little piece of bread and a little wee cup, that what it means to us is everything. Lord, I pray if there's anything in our hearts right now that's in the way of enjoying this meal, pray that we can bring that before you and confess. I confess my anxiety. I confess my distractedness. Lord, I pray this morning that we've been stirred up by way of reminder to be satisfied with the cross, to be content in you. We dine together on a simple meal. That's the true meal. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we take this little piece of bread, my prayer, personal prayer, is that he keeps me from focusing on these things that are exposed to moth and rust and decay. I mean, go buy a cool pair of shoes. It's not sinful to go buy a gift for somebody. Go enjoy a good meal. 
Man, Ecclesiastes says, man, that's a good thing. But do those things in faith. Don't delight in them. That's them term, That's delighting terminating on something that's just going to pass away. Delight in the God that gave you that meal. The God that provided those shoes or whatever. Delight in the God of that family time, not the family itself. Delight in the God in that moment, and then it becomes a faith thing. Apart from faith thing, a good thing can be sin. So my prayer is that we can be satisfied with a broken body that this represents in a time where it's real easy to be distracted. Go catch a sail, but do it in faith. With hallelujah chorus blaring. Man, is that greatness or what? Do it in faith and be salty and bright and aromatic. Whatever the context may be. Let's take this in faith. Our supper, on the other hand, trusts in something that someone who's risen and is very much alive, who's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Think of the contrast. And the anti-supper is trusting in something that's going to decay and will be destroyed or can be stolen or can go out of fashion. Right? But our supper is trusting in something that is eternal. Let's take, and take this together and enjoy the eternal nature of Christ. A couple things briefly. First of all, I, I want to share just how grateful Christy and I are um, for a church that takes such good care of us and gives us a break from the pulpit. Pulpit is, uh, man, it is a, it is a challenging, challenging thing. And uh, it's a blessing for us to have Brad the last couple weeks and Scott this week and next week. And um, y'all need to know that I, what Christy and I kind of recuperate during that time. I study and I prepare for upcoming sermons and just grateful for elders and uh, thankful for a body that is okay to hear the, the, the God's message through a different mouthpiece. And thankful for Scott preparing to preach over holiday. There's nothing harder, I don't think. It's because like you're going up the mountain and you're trying to get the work done, but yet there's a party going on. And you're expected to be there for portions of it. <laughs> so you're like, man, I got to go up the mountain. But you want to be at the party. And then other people expecting you to be at the party. And your family wants you at the party. It's just a hard time to prepare. And I'm thankful for Scott's preparation this week and for the, the worship uh, guys preparing this week and doing such a sweet job of it. One announcement I want to end the morning with is um, I want to share with you a situation that's going on with the Rafa Clinic. This is the, uh, the pregnancy clinic or the pregnancy resource clinic, whatever you want to call it. It's called the Rafa Clinic. Helps moms make decisions uh, that mean life for the unborn. Um, it also points them not just not just a terminal thing for life, but it's pointing them toward good news and gospel. Um, one of the actually the largest donor that the, the Rafa Clinic has has withdrawn their support from a number of clinics across the country. Uh, not any sort of you know bad will there. It's just they don't have the resources. So what that's meant for our clinic here is sixty five hundred dollars which is probably, and I'm winging it here, but I know it's a large part, about half of their budget, maybe even more than half of their budget. $6,500 a month is gone. And um, Teresa came up to me a few weeks ago and shared this with me. 
And I told her what I know is true is that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. $6,500 is nothing for the people of God in Greenville. And maybe this is supposed to happen so the people of God in Greenville can step up. Because we've been dependent on somebody that's not part of this local journey. So the local people of God can step up and be part of this. $6,500 a month. Here's what I figured out. We have 92 member families. Some of y'all are not member families, but you've been walking with us and kind of journeying together. We have 92 member families. If our 92 member families gave $20 a month, that's $1,840 a month that the clinic could depend on. $20 a month? That's, seriously, think about that. That's nothing. $50 a month would mean $4,100 a month from one little old church on the south side of Greenville. I'm not expecting us to shoulder the whole load of that, but I know the people of God in Greenville can, and we should. Man, I see this as opportunity, and I challenge y'all. Nobody's going to hunt you down and say, hey, man, you participate in the Robert Clinic? We're not going to do that. And we're not going to beat you over the head with, new, with announcements every week. This is one announcement. I'm going to follow it up with an email with details of how to follow through on this. It's between you and the Holy Spirit as the Spirit leads you. I know how it is. You get inundated with ministry things where people are saying, man, give, give, give. But, man, if the Spirit puts it on your heart, I pray that you can't sleep until you step out in obedience in it. $20 a month. Deducted, you never even see it. That's the way we do it. We never even see it. Don't even miss it. And yet it's sustaining a ministry where they can depend month to month. We know this is there. And we're not talking about a fat ministry. We're talking about lean. Those folks are lean. And from everything that I've seen, there's good stewardship there. Real good stewardship. And they sow, the, the seed is hitting the soil of folks that are really in crisis. It's a great opportunity to be part of something. Maybe your Christmas gift um, to the Lord this year. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss us. Thanks for being here this morning. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for our time together this morning. We are blessed to have been witness to and participate in a baptism. Uh, we're so thankful for little tiny faith. Thankful for a mom and dad who are sowing, who are enjoying you out loud between Sundays and thankful to participate and see and witness the fruit of that. Lord, we give you all the glory. We know that you are the one that opens the eyes of hearts. We know that you are the one that replaces cold, dead, stone hearts with hearts of flesh. We celebrate that this morning as we had an opportunity to witness the baptism. Lord, this morning we had an opportunity to enjoy the preached word and we are nourished and fed by it. Pray this week that we can seriously, honestly, just simply sit outside as a family and watch a bird and consider how good and faithful you are to provide for your creation. Lord, too, this morning we've had the sweet privilege of sharing a common meal with the living God. Lord, I pray that what earned that meal and what provided that meal is on our minds and hearts this week and these next few weeks as we go through this season. And that as a result of that, that we will be a salty, bright, aromatic people, whatever our context. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for, for Christ. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.